Bondi a butt. Ta-da! <laughs> you were saying? Welcome to episode 107 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Today I am joined by the guy whose motto is where beer and battlefields are, there I will also go, Darren Weeks. And I am his co-host Mary, who managed to make it through that wonderful intro without having to do two takes. (laughs) Wow. Beer, battlefields, Battlestar Galactica, the big three. Anyway, what's going on? Battlestar Galactica? Galactica. Everyone, yeah, for God's sakes, never mind, never mind. Anyway, what's going on? How are you? I was a great. That intro was pretty much exactly what I expected. Just absolutely so a disaster. No, it was it was it was great as far as you know. So how's everything going? How was your how's your how's your week been so far? Good. How about you? Oh, it hasn't been too bad. Friday is on the horizon. So finally, it's beautiful weather here in the Great Northeast. So we can't complain too much. I have to say, now that I'm done, like my first year of grad school, I am. Very thankful I'm getting back into just reading for myself and not something that's been assigned. So I finished Confederates in the Attic. And for anybody that hasn't read that, excellent book. Highly recommend it. Yes, we very much enjoy that too, Horowitz. It was fantastic, yeah. fantastic. So back in the saddle again, it's just us two. It's been a couple of weeks since we did this, which just us. So we're looking forward to this episode and we're going to have a lot of fun with this. But um, well, you're the host, so... I was about to get to it. I didn't want to be rude and interrupt you. What are you drinking no, in not you. mug? Are you drinking it out of? Oh, well, thank you so much. I am drinking, it's called um, Southern Tier from um, from wherever this is from. New York. Um, New York. And I'm drinking out of my... Spotsylvania Fredericksburg mug because that is appropriate because we're going to be talking about the Battle of Spotsylvania. And, uh, but thanks for asking. Anyhow, what about yourself? I'm drinking uh, Limbo IPA, which is by Long Trail Brewing out of Vermont. And Vermonters are going to figure into, um, if not this episode, we will be definitely talking about them in part two. Um, and I'm drinking it out of my General Grant mug. Oh, very good. Very good. So he, he's definitely a big part of this as well. So this is going to be the a first of a two-parter. We haven't done a two-parter in a while. No. We're going to do the first one, the uh, first Spotsylvania, the second Spotsylvania 2, the search for Curly's Gold. <laughs> and this will be this will be good because we're going to – this is a battle that um, – it, it's this, it, this goes on. It, it's a long battle and it's a long campaign. You know, the calendar flips to May and, and with it, the beginning of the battle season – and, you know, there are several things going on in the Civil War in the spring of mm-hmm. 1864, Mary. U.S. Grant, you mentioned him, his overland campaign. Yep. Is, it's it's one that has the most impact, probably certainly in the East at this point. May, just go back a little bit. May of 1864, you know, war has been going on for three plus years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while the Union Army is, is gaining traction in that Western theater, Robert E. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia still loom as the largest threat in the Eastern theater. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Some of it is a little slow and like, keep in mind, well, this, well, Spotsylvania, the Overland, which it's part of the Overland campaign is happening. You have Sherman um, on his Atlanta campaign as well. So that is happening. So there's two very big things happening at the same time in the civil war, as well as they're, I think you, I think you have uh, Nathaniel Banks down in the Gulf doing stuff down there as well. It's a, there's a lot of moving parts with this. So you know, to that end, if, um, March of 1864, Abraham Lincoln, he's going to mix things up a little bit. He's going to name U- Ulysses S. Grant, uh, commander of all Union, Union armies. He's going to be raised to the rank of lieutenant general, and, and he's going to be sent east. And he's going to join the the Army of the Potomac uh, with our old friend George Meade. Now, almost immediately when he gets there, you know, Grant is going to draw plans to bring an offensive campaign directly against Robert E. Lee. While his former subordinate William T. Sherman, like you mentioned, he's he's doing his thing going towards Atlanta. Yeah. 
Now, this offensive for Grant is going to be called the Overland Campaign. Everybody knows that. Now, the Union Army at this point, Mary, was enormous. It was gigantic. You know, starting with that campaign with over 120,000 guys, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia has got almost half of that at about 65,000. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Lee is going to try, it, it's going back to the beginning of Overland, he's going to try to basically seize the initiative by attacking Grant in that Battle of the Wilderness, the old Chancellorsville battlefield, you know, because of the dense forest, it's 70 square miles of just woods and crap. It's going to help offset that numerical advantage. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the Battle of the Wilderness, but suffice it to say, the Battle of the Wilderness was inconclusive when it ended on May 7th of 1864. But what it did, though, is it signaled a real sea change in in the Union military Mm -hmm. strategy. And that's going to prove to be a real game change. You know, up to this point, you know, the Union Army, their strategy was to try to sack Richmond. And, you know, that's what it was. And after every battle, they would fall back. They would rest and eventually try again. What separated this and was a real key turning point in the war was this grand change philosophy in two ways. The first thing is instead of trying to take Richmond, the hell with that, mm-hmm. he's going to focus on taking Lee. He's going to the target is going to be the army. And the other thing that's going to basically be a big change is they're going to, they're going to for the most part not back off. After every battle, like you said, they fall off. Grant's going to keep coming. And this is going yeah. to be a real big difference. And it's something that's going to really affect when we talk about the Battle of Spotsylvania, no question. Yeah, and, and to the thing is, like, you know, Grant tells Meade, wherever Lee goes, there you will also go. So as you said, it's a change. And the other thing, too, to mention is General Meade is still leading the Army of the Potomac at this time. When Grant came in, like, when Grant got, you know, the role that he did, which was commander of all armies, he came to Washington briefly. He did think about commanding from the Western Theater, but he decided to make his base in the East. And, um, you know, there's a lot written about the Grant-Meade relationship, but I, I found this one quote, and I think it's important, um, you know, just to kind of show their relationship. But Meade wrote to his wife after Grant had taken over and said, Grant is so much more active than his predecessor and agrees so well with me in his views. I cannot but be rejoiced at his arrival because I believe my success to be that more probable. My duty is plain to continue quietly to, to discharge my duties, heartily cooperating with him and under him. And I think Meade knew at that point that, you know, he Grant was going to overshadow him, but Meade was a soldier and he's going to continue to fulfill his duties. So it's but Grant definitely plays a large role in this Overland campaign and in what is going to be the Battle of Spotsylvania. Right. So, you know, Grant has a two to one man advantage. You know, Lee is still under the impression that Grant wants Richmond. This mm-hmm. is going to this is going to go on and on. So. What Grant's going to do is after these battles, he's going to basically go around Lee's right into the south with the plan to draw Lee out and play right into Grant's hands. And he knew that Grant was just going to use this war of attrition. He was going to keep swinging and swinging and swinging. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the numbers are going to tell the story in Grant's head. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be costly. But eventually, it's just a mathematical equation. I mean, you're you're going to win eventually if you have the stones to do it. So real quick, Battle of the Wilderness at the ends. Lee expects Grant, like we said, to just like all of his predecessors, predecessors have, mm-hmm. is to fall back. Yep. Grant's going to move around to the left and try to go south. And he's going to head to a small village called Spotsylvania Courthouse. Now, it's a, it doesn't have a lot of strategic value, but like Gettysburg, 
it's got a lot of roads. So yeah. if you're going to, if you take Spotsylvania Courthouse, you're going to be able to concentrate your army because this army is gigantic and there's not a lot of roads in that wilderness area of Virginia. So he needs a town that he can basically blow the conch shell and have his men travel on those roads. And if you if you are going to attack Richmond, you have to kind of have it because it's close and it has that road network. Yeah. Now, Lee sees this and suddenly he discovers that Grant ain't falling back. You know, something strange, it's a foot a, of a circle okay. K, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a whole new, you know, it's kind of, I think, in a way, Lee had become accustomed to what other Army of Potomac commanders, you know, had. But now he's got Grant, who's coming th- from the Western Theater, where the war is. I mean, I don't want to say it's a little bit more rougher. It's a little bit more Wild West out there. Grant's a different style of commander than I think what Lee has encountered so far. Last time Lee and Grant had encountered each other, I think, was in the Mexican War, right? It was, it was a long time. Lee's going to realize this, and he, and then he's going to look at the map, and he's going to go, oh, crap, he's going to Spotsylvania Courthouse. Yep. I better get there before he does. So basically what happens is, is the race is on. Now, Lee knows he doesn't have the manpower to stop Grant, but what he does have in the advantage is that is that road network and the terrain are going to slow Grant down. Mm-hmm. Grant's army, like I said, is really big. There aren't enough adequate roads to move them all, so they're going to be slow. It's just going to yeah. take them. Yeah, I think Grant kind of was accustomed to, you know, Sherman was pretty quick at moving his armies, and they were pretty quick out in the Western Theater. And, you know, I didn't think he, I don't think he realized how much Meade would get bogged down in the wilderness, and he's he's like a day behind. And I don't think Grant was disappointed. It was just one of those things where it's like Lee's like or Meade's like, well. I can't go any further, so we have to stop. Like we're getting bogged down no. by everything. Like, cause you can you imagine moving like the the horses with the artillery, you know, for anybody who's been to the wilderness, like that would be terrible to have to do that, and it would definitely slow you down. And not to mention the weather; it's hot. It's hot as hell right now. Too. Well, they say for, for every ten thousand men, you need thirty miles of road when you yeah. factor in men and artillery and all that. Now, what Lee's going to do is he's the roads aren't going to be any faster for him. There's no express line mm-hmm. here for him, so he he has the same issue. He's going to send his fastest troops to try to beat and block Grant to get to Spotsylvania, and that's going to be, of course, his cavalry under yep. Jeb Stuart. Now. Grant knows what Lee's up to. He knows he's going to use his cavalry. So what he's going to do is basically he is going to have his cavalry chief, of course, the great Phil Sheridan, sarcastically. He's going to use he's going to use little Phil <laughs> yeah. to take his cavalry and basically clear the road. They're going to, for the most part, go down road grade down down the mm-hmm. road and clear out Jeb's cavalry for the infantry. So they can proceed to Spotsylvania. Now, there's going to be a problem there. There's a problem here in Spotsylvania. Right? Shocker. And that is there is a mutual hatred that they have between Sheridan and George Meade. And that's yes. going to make a big part of this battle. George Meade just he they they just they just don't like each they other. They don't get a, it's and, like I don't know if it's an ego thing, but I mean Sheridan clashes with you know we know from our episode about Five Forks how much Sheridan clashes with Warren as well, and I mean. Sheridan is coming from the Western Theater with Grant, and they they have that kind of established friendship and relationship. But I mean, the way I see it is like, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Sheridan by any stretch. Sheridan's like his little lapdog, and he doesn't want to be told what to do by General Meade. He he kind of is this person that's like, I'm only going to take orders from Grant. Well, and he you know he screws up nine times in a row, but then yep. the tenth time he succeeds. So he has a bad day, you know. Then he had you know he has Stones River. Bunch yeah. of bad days. He has Cedar Creek. So he's just enough 
to, to kind of, it's like that Grant kind of turns a blind eye. Finally wins, so you keep playing. Yeah, Grant kind of turns a blind eye to it. And it's like Sheridan is never in Grant's doghouse, it seems, you know? Well, because okay. they're, 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 they're boys. You know, yeah. Sheridan, you know, he is going to send his two division commanders, this is Wesley Merritt and Run DMG, yeah. David Mercury Gregg, down the Brock Road, which is the road that connects the wilderness of Spotsylvania. Now, Meade, for the most part, is going to head down this road, and he's going to see what's going on. He will get to a place called Todd's Tavern. Mm -hmm. And if you've been there lately, it's got a beer store. I'm stunned you haven't been there if you haven't, to be honest. But it's got, it's a little beer market right now. Todd's Tavern, you can go there and you can buy yeah. beer for whatever you want to do. And he's going to see Union Cavalrymen kind of sitting around chilling, doing nothing. And yeah. you know who's not there? Sheridan. Yeah. And so Meade, I don't know if you know this, Mary, but fellow has got a little bit of a temper. Yeah. Story. Is this where he, like, I read the story where he walked around and he literally kicked was kicking soldiers like in he the ass kicking, and he was like get up you need right. to get up now and so he was kicking them you know just you know just getting them going i'm totally picturing and, him doing that it's hilarious and, and so he he's he's mad he's because he needs to he knows he needs to clear jeb stewart so Meade's is going to get these guys he's going to give them orders tell them to you know get their hindquarters you know and, and the horse you rode in on if you know what i mean yeah. down the brock road he will finally find sheridan in a, in a place called Piney Branch Church. And at this location, you will have one of the all-time great swearing arguments take place between George Meade yep. and Bill Sheridan. Sheridan's going to take offense that Meade ordered his men around. And Meade, he's going to basically say, if, if you look at uh, Sheridan's quotes, he says that moving his cavalry was a prolific expenditure of cavalry to clear the road for some useless military infantry. That's what Sharon wow. said to me about, cool. about him doing that. Yeah. He also blamed me for every cavalry failure in the history of mankind because of his meddling. When Meade finally enough, he goes to report Sheridan to the big man, to U.S. Grant for insubordination. Yep. Grant's like, ah, you know. It's just... And so what they end up doing is Sheridan decides he needs to GTFO. So what he's going to do is he wants to come up with this game plan yeah. that he wants to keep going past Baltimore to the south draw out Jeb Stewart, beat him, and then that's going to be the end of it. Yeah, he's and got this... Like, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Like, I need, I, he's like, I'm going to need the cavalry here. we got a big yeah. battle coming up. And Grant basically says to me, Sheridan generally knows what he's talking about. Let him start right out and do it. Which it's and like, so, why am I even in charge? And I mean, Sheridan wrote in his memoirs at this point, he's like, I found Meade's peppery temper had got the better of his good judgment. He's showing a disposition to be unjust, laying blame here and there for blunders that had been committed. He was particularly severe on the cavalry. But, I mean, Sheridan hadn't had a, a great performance. And you have to remember, Meade had a, I think Meade had a pretty good relationship with John Buford, who had unfortunately passed away December of 1863 from, I think it was tuberculosis. So Buford's well, not in the picture anymore. No, and so part of it's thinking, well, Meade's happy, Sheridan's gone. But the bottom line is, going forward they're now. without cavalry. There's no cavalry anymore. they don't have anything to screen so he, he takes all of them so that's going to prove to be a huge thing so you know before you know before that but before jeb goes though you know jeb basically is going to do whatever he can to slow the union as they go to spots of a courthouse now what, he, what he's going to do is if you go down there you'll notice a bunch of ridges yeah he's going to do what buford did at gettysburg jeb's going to set up on a ridge he's going to slow them down and then when the union gets a little closer, he's going to fall back. That's the strategy he does. And 
for the most part, he is going to give Governor K. Warren from the Fifth Corps absolute fits. Governor K. Warren fell in his junk at the wilderness, so he was mm-hmm. in no good mood. He Meade so and him got Meade and him got in a fight too over that. Yeah, and so he is going to have a tough time because for one, the roads are limited, and now everywhere he goes, he's dealing with Jeb's this, this cavalry now. Yeah. When when Stewart finally reaches that last ridge right there at the um at Spotsbury Courthouse, he knows that he has nowhere else to go. So he's going to send a message, Jeb is to, to Robert E. Lee, asking him to send infantry ASAFP mm-hmm. to get up here because I need I need infantry. The nearest infantry is going to be the first corps. Normally this would be James Longstreet. Yeah, but Longstreet got shot at the wilderness by his own men. Mm-hmm. So who takes over? Richard Anderson. Yeah. He's going to basically take over the Corps just a few days prior. So he's going to be new at this. And Anderson is basically, he'll basically carve a road through the, the he's going to get there. He's going to get his infantry. He's going to go through the woods. And while his, his infantry are showing up, here's Jeb. Jeb is ordering his men around. He's pushed, he's putting the infantry in different places. Yeah. He's like playing whack-a-mole. Union comes this way, hits him. They move this way, hits them. Yep. And Jeb has a really, really good experience and a good day with this because he is leading infantry, leading his cavalry, yep. and he's, he's killing it. He's having a great well, day. Jeb has proven himself that he's a pretty good cavalry guy, um, and he's also good at infantry because if you remember, like a year prior to this, after Stonewall Jackson got shot, he had to lead his guys at the Battle of Chancellorsville. So so Jeb is pretty you know, versatile in that respect that he can go from – cavalry to infantry like he seems to understand the tactics of both yeah and so this is going on richard anderson's infantry is showing up and warren realizes at some point that Mm. he's not just fighting cavalry he realizes he's fighting infantry now and so he's stunned he's like how the hell do they get infantry up here so while this is going on he's slowing warren down Lee is sending more troops around and they're setting up a defense line at Spotsylvania, just outside of, on the final ridge of Spotsylvania mm. Courthouse. Now, in the face of infantry, Warren is going to stop. He's going he's to realize he's going to split the brakes on to his fifth corps. He's going to wait until the sixth corps comes up, who's commanded by John Sedgwick. Mm-hmm. He's going to wait till he arrives on the field and they're delayed because of a bunch of different reasons. They got a ton of men. Yeah. They got all those wagons. They're bogged down. And it's hot as hell. Oh yeah, it's, it's so unseasonably hot. it's unseasonably warm for Virginia in, in, in this part of early May. It's ninety degrees. It's, it's humidity. It's dusty, um, and it's just going to be brutal. The Union Second Corps under Winfield Scott Hancock, man, he's three miles back, uh, back towards Todd's Tavern mm. at the Wilderness, and they're also Hancock blocked too by the roads. <laughs> they can't get anywhere. So everybody is kind of bogged. What this means is the Union Army is arriving piecemeal. Mm-hmm. They're coming in different pieces. Yep. The Ninth Corps under Ambrose Burnside, he's going to have to swing all the way around to the up and around from the left to the right to get into position. It's going to take him forever to get there. Yeah. And it's partially because of the terrain and, for the most part, the heat and those Stuart Ridge back attacks. He's, yeah. For the most part, he's... Stewart has done a great job delaying the Union Army and yeah. letting Lee set up a defense line in Spotsylvania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he definitely has, and like it's you know, and Meade accuses Sedgwick of being constitutionally slow in this regard, and this is also where like Meade gets Meade and Warren kind of have it out over 
you know, Mead's, Mead's just like, can you, you need to cooperate with Sedgwick and Warren's like, I'm not taking orders from anybody but you kind of thing. And they, they have it out as well during this time. It, it, there's a lot of this internal politics. Yeah. You, get a lot of, you get a lot of new people coming in and some of these troops are marching. You can only imagine how hot it was. Well, and to the, guys- the other thing too, it's like, it's easy for Jeb to see where they are because again, this is where weather, weather factors into Spotsylvania from the beginning to the end. Like they're kicking up all this dust on the road too. So not only are they, they can be seen, but you think about you're marching, you're thirsty, and then you have dust coming up. It's like you're breathing it in and everything else. It's miserable. Like soldiers were suffering from heat stroke uh, during this time as well. And two, the other thing, it hadn't rained in a while. And there's a bit of a drought at this time all over the United States, apparently. And, but I mean, that's obviously going to change in a few days, but still it's hot and it's slowing everybody down and they can't get any, and there's like water is scarce as well. Well, there's, there's nothing to drink. It's like when you come in from your, your run early in the morning, you need that morning beer. You're just sweaty. And it's, just, it's the same thing. But these guys are marching through this hot, dusty dirt yeah. and they're trying to get there. And, but what, what's going on though is what, what it did, though it did prevent Grant from hitting Lee with the full banana, the whole army. So now it played right into Lee's hands. So mm-hmm. if you, you, you've been a Spotsylvania, but, but people yeah. who listen to this, if, you, if you've been a Spotsylvania and you've seen the battlefield, you'll notice a couple of things about it. First, first of all, how pristine it is. Yeah. It's absolutely very few monuments. It looks very similar to the way it did in 1864 yeah. for the most part. The other thing you're going to notice that is the topography. Now, the ridges run along this terrain and is a natural high ground uh, near a house that used to be there called the McCool Farm, which is a natural artillery platform. Mm. Just north of the, of the McCool Farm is a ridge that kind of juts out. And, and when Confederate troops started to get there and started to fill in these ridges, to, they started to build breastworks on yeah. this ridge. When they did, they created a natural salience. Now, a salient a military word. Most people know what that is. You hear a lot in Civil War battles, you know, Sickles and Barlow and those guys. But for the most part, it tends to be usually bad for the people. Yeah, who it's are almost like a, it's a, like an area that kind of juts out. It's like an air bubble almost, right? It's, it, it juts out for the most part. It, it, in some cases, it will create a 90-degree angle. And a 90-degree angle, the reason why that's bad is it creates 270 degrees of attack radius. And it's tough to mount fire out. So if you're in a, if you're in a salient, it's a very tough position to defend. So May 9th, you know, the men who are positioned in the salient are commanded by Richard Yule. Mm-hmm. Now, when Lee is going to inspect the line, he is going to immediately notice this salient and he doesn't like it. Defend, defending it is really, really difficult. And if the Union breaks through, it, they go right behind. They go right yeah. through. So it's a very difficult place. So Yule... Lee doesn't like it. Yule's okay with it, though. He says, listen, I can defend mm-hmm. the salient. No worries, but I need as many artillery pieces as possible. So he's going to get Richard C.M. Page's artillery of 24 guns. This is four, four Virginia battalions and one from Alabama. So he's got 24 guns on this ridge. Now, when the men are in this position, the salients, because of the shape, they refer they refer to it as the mule shoe salient. Yeah. Why? It's like a freaking mule shoe. Yeah, that's why it does. It if that. you look at if you look at it on a map, that's exactly what it looks like too. Um, and it said yeah, like so, the Confederates, like you said, they know it's an area of weakness, but Ewell's pretty sure that it's going to be okay. And one quote I found about it was, "It's a bad piece of engineering and certain to invite attack as soon as the enemy understood it." 
and they, and they will. So, you know, Yule's guys are going to dig in. They're going to build breastworks. And Page's artillery is going to be in position in the mule shoe. At this moment, it's very heavily defended against any potential Union attack. It's pretty strong. While this is happening, this is on May 9th, the Union scouts are watching the Confederates and scouting the Confederate line. Yeah. And they're trying to set up, you know, set up places for artillery. And they really, and it's tough to find because there's few and far between, but there are a few wooded areas. About a mile or so, maybe a little less than a mile, in front of the Confederate line, the commander of the 6th Corps, John Sedgwick, is yeah. going to be riding on a horse near a battery of Union artillery. And rebel sharpshooters are in the area. And and they're going to be taking shots. Bullets are going to be zipping by. And the artillery, as the bullets go by, the artillery guys are going to kind of duck and scatter. Yeah. And Sedgwick is going to be riding on his horse, kind of having a good time with them. And he's going to famously chide these artillerists. You know what he says? Yeah. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Not one few seconds later, Sedgwick is going to be shot by a carbine under his left eye. And it's going to kill him instantly. Mm-hmm. And the story gets mocked and joke about. You see the memes and all that. Yeah. But in reality, the loss of John Sedgwick on the eve of this battle is catastrophic for U.S. Grant and the Army. If you read Grant's memoirs, he's going to write of Sedgwick. This is, this is obviously afterwards. He stood very high in the Army as an officer and a man. Mm-hmm. He was brave and, dec- and declined the command of the Army of Potomac once, if not often. His loss was a severe one Mm. for the Army of the Potomac and the nation. So this was a big, this was a big, big loss. Yeah, for think of John Sedgwick, to think of of that, but that was a huge loss for U.S. Grant. That was the one thing I realized in doing the research for this episode, and it kind of it made me think about another huge death in the Army in 1864, and that was out in the Western Theater when McPherson was shot and killed at the Battle of Atlanta. And Sherman had much the same reaction that, you know, this was a huge thing for, you know, in the Western Theater, it was Army of the Tennessee. And now for the Army of the Potomac, this is a huge thing. And one of his men, one of his staff described him saying Sedgwick was essentially a soldier. He had never married. Um, the Army was his home and the members of his staff were his family. He often slept outside with his soldiers. He'd done that on the last night of his life um, at the edge of Spindles Field in the area where they were camped. The morning that he was killed, he was described as being very cheerful. And in one of his last conversations was was with uh, one of his staff officers, and I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it was McMahon. And McMahon was like, you know, basically telling him, dude, you need to stay back. And Cedric said to him, I would like to know who commands this corps, you or I. And they just had this kind of this exchange. And one of the other soldiers in the Sixth Corps said, we could not believe for a long time that our kind old leader had fallen, but soon it was confirmed that he he as was indeed gone. There is not a man in the Sixth Corps, but what mourns his loss, nor anyone in the whole army for that matter. And the other thing that was said about him was we knew he was reckless and brave, but he but thought that he the thought that he would be killed never occurred to us. So this is a guy. I mean, his men referred to him as Uncle John. So right there, there's that kind of that family, that that uncle uh-huh. sort of family thing. So this is a huge thing that now the, you know, Grant and Meade and the Army of the Potomac are having to deal with going into Spotsylvania. They're, they're crushed. They are. But the show must go on. So yep. taking over for him is going to be Horatio Wright. He's a divisional commander. And he's going to take him into that sixth corps. Now, Wright had huge shoes to fill and had no time to prepare for it for the most part. So what Wright will, what Wright's going to do is he will 
he will see that rebel position on the mule shoe. And, and likely he sees a salience and he knows that quickly that this is a situation that can be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. It looks like they're vulnerable despite seeing those 24 guns from Paige. And the responsibility to break the salient is going to fall on the newcomer Horatio Wright and his sixth corps. So he's going to be responsible for it. He's going to sit down with his commanders now and try to devise a plan. When they're sitting around talking, the commander of the 2nd Brigade, a 24-year-old West Point grad from Batavia, New York, named, named Emery Upton, mm -hmm. says he has an idea. Yep. Now, this is a hotshot type of guy. He was Upton was a confident fellow, Mary. You know, back at West Point, he famously challenged a classmate to a, a sword duel because a student made derogatory comments, comments about him and black women. Oh my and he God. wasn't having it. So, he, but but he's an abolitionist guy, and he and he's 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 very um he's very for the union. Apparently, he had no sense of humor, though. No, he's a, he's a tough one. But when the Civil War started, you know, just real quick and up to it, he rose quickly in the ranks. And in October of eighteen sixty-two, he was named Colonel of the hundred twenty-first New York mm -hmm. at age twenty-three, and he was a rising star. And he he, he knew. If he performed well, that he had a real good chance to uh, to get a star. If he if he thought he felt he did well, he did. So Upton's Upton's idea for the most part was this. He says instead of attacking the mule shoe in that traditional linear formation formation, he wanted to mass his troops in a dense group and attack them. He said like a fist. He wanted yeah. to punch him with like a fist. And Upton wanted to rush the line and he wanted to Kool Aid man right through. The mule shoe yep. just burst right through and, and go, go real quick. The federal troops would flood in and, and for the most part to break that line. It was a very unusual tactic at the time and it was rarely if ever used. It had been so done a Wright, couple times. Right, but it's, yeah. it's, very, it's yeah. very rare. So yeah. Wright's going to take this idea and go to Grant. Grant's like, eh, YOLO, why not? Sounds like a pretty good idea. So mm -hmm. he's going to bless the plan. But the thing they didn't think about is... When they burst through the line, what they were going to do then? Yeah, like and, they're and only going to have forty five hundred men, right? Like it's twelve regiments. And where he had got this from was the previous May um, at the Second Battle of Fredericksburg, which was fought during Chancellorsville. Upton and the one twenty first New York were six regiments that were overwhelmed by Confederates along the sunken sunken road. Um, but the troops ended up attacking in a narrow column that struck more like a fist than a wave in a traditional battle. And many of the same regiments had done something similar at Rappahannock Station, and that forced a Confederate withdrawal. So that's what Upton takes to them. And Grant, like you said, is totally cool with it. And he's going to have 4,500 men, including his own 120, 121st New York. And again, he's talking to McMahon, who was the guy that was speaking to Sedgwick earlier. And he says, Upton, you are to lead those men upon the enemy's works this afternoon. And if you do not carry them, you're not expected to come back. But if you do carry them, I'm authorized to say you will get your stars. So it's kind of like this whole thing with um, 300 Spartans where it's like you either come home with your shield or on it. Yeah, yeah no, no question. He's not going to be by himself, though. He is going to have some other people. Attackman yeah. Upton's left and right um, at the tip of the salient is going to be the 4th Division of the 2nd Corps. This is under Brigadier General Gershom Mott. Now, Mott's a Jersey man, Mary. He was a grandson of Captain John Mott, who during the Rev War, he actually guided George Washington across the Delaware River mm -hmm. for the Battle of Trenton. So he's got a lot of battle and a lot of history. Now it's Gershom Mott's turn to lead an army. And what's cool about his division is people wonder what ever happened to Dan Sickles' Third Corps. 
they ended up in Gershom's division. Yeah. So when you look at his his division, it's all it's all the people from the third court in Gettysburg, it's a first mass and Excelsior, 71st, 70th New York, um, you know, fifth New Jersey. They all, the survivors that was left of them went to Gershom Mott's division. So that's where they all were. Um, and so also in this attack is Warren's fifth corps from a couple of days before, and they're going to be attacking the other end of the Confederate line. So this entire assault of Upton, Mott and Warren was to be simultaneous and it was going to mm-hmm. begin exactly at five o'clock, which unfortunately didn't happen. We'll, we'll screw up. We'll talk about that. But we've said a million times, basically communication problems, doom battles, and this was no different. And Upton wasn't ready to go at five o'clock. And he asked to delay until six. Yeah. Who knows why? I, I'm not ready. So, and of course, Horatio Wright and U.S. Grant, oh, they acquiesce to this. They say, okay, well, if you're not ready, we'll, we'll go at six o'clock. But here's the problem. Gershom Mott was not told of this. So no. he's ready to go at five o'clock. So right on schedule at five o'clock, he moves his division out of the woods directly in, at the tip of the mule shoe. Yeah. And those 24 guns of Richard C.M. Page are sitting there waiting. And they rake these guys. Mott's guys don't get 30 to 40 yards outside of the wood line when Mott issues General Order GTFO yep. and they get the hell out of there yeah. because they're getting absolutely wiped out by this artillery. So also to throw at this thing even worse, G.K. Warren looks at his clock as 4.30, says, eh, close enough, and he goes. I know, yeah. He kind of like, he's doing this thing where it's like, okay, I have my orders, but I'm going to use them as guidelines. And it's like, oh, I guess I can go in early because I want to. Yeah, and his his attack goes nowhere as well. So undaunted at six o'clock, Upton is going to begin his fist attack, yeah. which will be will be alone now because Mott and Warren have been, have been already out. They're numb. You mentioned before, Upton has twelve regiments, forty five hundred men. They're all handpicked personally by Horatio Wright. Mm-hmm. This is forty third, seventy second, hundred twenty first New York, like you mentioned, forty ninth, ninety sixth, hundred nineteenth PA. The fifth and sixth Maine go to England. The fifth New England, I mean the, the fifth Wisconsin, and the second, fifth, and sixth Vermont. Yeah. So when Upton saw the men he would have, you know, he is going to tell. You mentioned Martin McMahon. He's going to tell McMahon, Mac, these are the best men in the entire army. He says to McMahon. So yeah. he's pretty excited about the opportunity. Well, I mean, it's like you're 24 years old, and the boss is like, you've basically you're like pitched your idea, and they're like, yes, we'll do it. And the, the first ones that are going to go in with him in the first wave are the 121st New York, the 96th PA, and the 5th Maine, as you said, are part of this. And their job is to kind of kick that door open, like, with everything they've got and using a bayonet. Um, they were to load the muskets but not put the percussion cap in place because they're basically, like, they don't want them to fire them. And then after that, you know, the men were to go either to the right or the left um, and then from there, the other waves would come in and there was going to be four. The, the Vermont guys, um, the second, fifth, and sixth are kind of, they're being held in reserve and they're either going to be used to further exploit the gap or cover the possible retreat. Yeah, I mean, it's no, and they're going to be going up against the militia, which is straight. This is going to be guys from George Joel's, uh, George Dole's Georgia. Yeah, it's this called Dole's four, Salient, right? Is right. what they've called it. The, four, the 44 Georgia. So they're going to be this battle-tested veterans here from george doles mm-hmm. now they're going to get to the line quickly in the mat and that that mass atta- that mass assault at double quick 
and they're going to get quickly into that hand-to-hand combat right at the breastwork. So the rebels were so surprised by this that many of them didn't even have time to reload after that first volley. Yeah. And they threw the muskets like spears. Now, the sun was also still blazing. It's 90-plus degrees. Yeah. It's hot as hell when this assault's taking place. One of Upton's guys talking about the rebels, he says, the rebels threw their muskets at us like they were New England whalers. I mean, no word of Brick Tamil was there with his trident, but they, you can get the <laughs> idea of what they were. But they're literally throwing the bayonet muskets like yep. because they didn't have time. Doles is going to get support from Junius Daniels' brigade after being ordered by Yule to go help out. Yule will tell Daniels, within five minutes, I'll have enough men to eat up every damn one of them. That's what he's going to say. Confident, confident guy. Yeah. So Upton does break through after that severe uh, hand-to-hand combat. But predictably, they can't hold it. They got 4,500 guys, and they start to fall back. But they do get 1,000 Confederate prisoners out of this. So it's a pretty good haul. Yeah, Yeah, and someone said, um, Emery Upton said of it, here occurred deadly hand-to-hand combat. The enemy sitting in their pits with pieces upright, loaded and with bayonets fixed, ready to impale the first who should leap over, absolutely refused to yield the ground. The first of our men who tried to surmount the works fell pierced through the head by musket balls. Others, seeing the fate of their comrades, held their pieces at arm's length and fired downward, while others, poising their pieces vertically, hurled them down upon the enemy, pinning them to the ground. So this is this is kind of like, this is the fighting at Spotsylvania, and it's going to continue like this as the battle goes on. Like, Upton's is just kind of like the kind of the opening act of all of this and how this right. hand-to-hand brutal combat is going to continue through this battle. You know, Upton, it's, it's considered a failed assault for the most part. Blame quickly fell on Garsham, Garsham Mott for some reason. Yeah, yeah he's kind of the scapegoat. Of like, I was trying to figure that out when I was reading about this battle. Like, I'm like, okay, like, I guess Mott kind of screwed up, but so did Warren, but why? Like, Mott seems almost like a scapegoat. In all this? No, this this falls on Grant and Horatio Wright. There's, yeah. there's no question. Because, yeah. because Gershom Mott did what he was supposed to do at the time he was supposed to do yeah. it. Uh, everything fell apart. Um, Grant, though, did recognize Upton, Upton's heroic, heroicism and, and his plan. So he does he does get that star. So he is going to get promoted yeah. and he's going to become a general. Um, and But the thing about it, though, as you mentioned just a second ago, it's kind of a test run. Upton's assault is going to prove to be the catalyst for the rest of the Battle of Spotsylvania. Now, Grant realized that Upton was able to break that rebel mule shoe with just 4,500 guys. And he wondered what would happen if I sent more than, if I sent more, like maybe 20,000 in. Yeah. So, and this is the thing, it's funny how these battles remind you of everyone. So, for the Gettysburg people, this is the same situation as when that George and Ambrose Rice broke through the angle on July 2nd. Mm-hmm. And then Lee says, you know something? Maybe I'll set everyone there and have better luck, which of course is Pickett's charge. Yeah. So it's very similar to, if you think about the the, the overall. That's strategy. what it was. That's what I was reading one thing, and it said you know it's very similar to Pickett's charge in some ways. What Grant decides to do. Yeah. So Grant's going to sit down. He's going to come up with the next phase of his attack with the memory of Upton's assault in the back of his mind. So instead of one division. Grant is going to hit the mule shoe with the entire second corps under Winfield Scott Hancock. 19,000 men is how mm-hmm. much there's, there's going to be. He will also use Horatio Wright's sixth corps, which is 20,000 more men to support Hancock, as well as Ambrose Burnside's ninth corps, which will be on that Union far left, which is basically going to demonstrate. It's kind of what they're going to do. Yep. But the whole attack is supposed to begin first light on May 12th. 
And, you know, we, we've talked many times about logistics with these battles, yeah. specifically how to move large amounts of men and materials on small roads. And this is going to become an issue. Now, this situation, this battle is going to be pure comedy. Now, this whole thing. Now, Han- Hancock's Second Corps was still about three miles away near that Todd's Tavern. They're going to have to move his entire corps to a staging area about a, about a quarter or so mile in front of the mule shoe yep. in a place called the Brown Farm. Now, Burnside's Ninth Corps is also going to have to move as well. And when the Second and Ninth Corps start to show signs of movement, these Confederate scouts report this to Lee. And he goes, yep, this is what I totally expected. Mm-hmm. This goes back to what we were saying earlier. You have a battle, the Union falls back, and they retreat. And that's what Lee thinks he's doing as, you know, and it's like, but at this point, Grant has written to Stanton and said, um, you know, this is when he says, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Yeah, Grant's not planning on going anywhere. No, he's Lee, staying. Lee gets, Lee gets to sees the movement, and he thinks they're going to cross the river and go back to Grandma's house in Fredericksburg. Yeah. That's where he think they're Grandma's all going. House. Because that's what they always do. Now, Lee saw an opportunity here, right? And he, he wants to seize the initiative. And he's thinking, well, if Grant's going back to Fredericksburg, I can hit him. I can kick him in the butt on the way out. Yep. I want to take advantage of this. He begins to plan accordingly now as a, for a counterattack. Now, not all of Lee's generals agree with him on this. No. A.P. Hill, who was, as usual, was sick and missed a lot of this battle, yep. he wanted to stay and he suggests staying in the trenches and just wait for Grant to come. And Lee responds, no, we must hit him in the open and strike them a blow. Because if we stay in the trenches, it'll become a siege. And Lee knows that about this numerical disadvantage. He knows if this turns into a siege, he's done. Yeah. So he has to seize the initiative. He wants to move around Grant's, basically around Grant's left. Yeah. And intercept him before they can get to, to Fredericksburg. So he begins to make plans to move. Now, it's now May, May 11th now, mm-hmm. same as today. Yep. Recording on and, the anniversary. Um, we are. The weather has significantly changed. It's gone from really, really hot and dry to absolutely pouring in like a monsoon. Yeah, it's completely changed. Like The ground's turning to mud. The roads are quickly becoming impassable. For that reason, Lee wants to move his artillery first because they're the slowest moving things. I mm-hmm. mean, obviously. Richard C.M. Page's artillery, who did so well at pushing Garsham Ottaway. They're at the mule shoe, and they're going to be the first ones that Lee is going to get moving. Because if for one, they're the furthest away from the roads leading to the Spotsylvania Courthouse. So mm-hmm. he starts to move them. Now, these are the guns that Richard Yule desperately said he needed to maintain that mule shoe defense. So moving them was extremely, extremely risky yeah, to his he life. He leaves him personally. four, like he, and it's Allegheny Johnson who's up there, and he leaves him four guns. Yeah, Lee, and this is the thing: Lee's going to order those guns away without even mentioning it to Richard Yule, Yule's division commander. You mentioned Edward Allegheny Johnson. He's going to discover that the guns are gone, and he had twenty-four. Now he's got four. Yeah. So he sees them missing, and he goes, "Dude, where's my guns?" Right. <laughs> He's going to go tell Yule, and Yule finds out, who immediately messages Lee to remind him again. He goes, remember I told you how crucial these guns were? Well, well yeah. freaking gone. Lee should know it's a salient and, like, not I, – I don't know. This is one of those moments where I was, like, I was reading this. I'm like, this is pretty risky 
to take the guns off a salient like that. And you're, well, you know, it's risky. It's risky. If you think they're staying to attack, they're yeah. not risky if they think, if they think they're going, Lee is going to reluctantly say, all right, you know what? I tell you what, I'll get you the damn guns back, but they won't be back until at least morning because they're gone. So this is the best. Well, they I don't get do the gun. Like, the artillery doesn't get the order to like three in the morning. And by that right, point, it's right. like, well, I guess we so got to bust it back there. Johnson finds out Allegheny, his guns are gone till morning. He probably face palms. You could probably hear in Richmond when that happened. <laughs> but he, you know, he Allegheny Johnson is a battle tested Virginian, you know, who had been going, who had been fighting with Lee all the way back to the yeah. Western Virginia, back at the Battle of Greensboro River. So he's he's been with Lee forever. He fought in the Valley with Stonewall Jackson, where he took that bullet at the Battle of McDowell in the ankle, yeah. and he never recovered from it. And he needed that hickory walking stick. Everywhere he went, and that's why he earned the nickname Old Clubby yeah. to his men, because he carried the stick around. Now, it's, it's funny, funny thing about Allegheny Johnson. People don't really pay attention to him, because why the hell would you, right? Allegheny Johnson had this weird eye issue that he blinked. And he called he him nervous. Old Blinky, right? They, well, they, I don't know if they call him Blinky, but they just he always blinked. And there's that really fun story where he's, after he got shot at the Battle of McDowell on his ankle, he's back in Richmond and he's rehabbing. And he was fond of the ladies, Allegheny Johnson. Mm. He got like to get his swerve on. Well, there's that one story where he's sitting there at a party and he's talking to some dude's wife and he starts blinking at her naturally. And it hilarity ensues and they end up almost issue with this guy, with this one woman and her husband oh because God. he has this natural weird blinking thing, which is one of those things. But um, in any case, He's Johnson's really nervous. He's a scared about this situation. Mm. So he's going to go to bed on the 11th of May. And he's so nervous. He sleeps in his full uniform, mm. keeps his boots on. He's just, he, I'm just going to lay down. This, I, this, this I honestly don't fun. blame him because, you know, you know, you're in a position that is very vulnerable to attack. And you probably are like, what hardcore evidence do we have that Grant is falling back to Fredericksburg? Like I would, if I had been him, I would have been like, I want to see the like, like actual proof of this because I don't know. I mean, I get taking some guns, but like 20, that's, that's excessive. And then you're, you're like exposed, you know? Well, like, don't forget, I mean, forget being the, Lee, Lee realized it's, it's an attrition thing. He yeah. has to hit them when he can. He, yeah. And just by past history, I mean, yeah. this is, this is Lee. This is what he thought. Now the brigade on the mule shoe, that night was a brigade of a, a bunch of Virginians under William Witcher. And at, when you're on the front line, part of your responsibility is you have to um, send a picket line out. Yeah. Witcher took over John Jones, who was killed at the wilderness a few, a few days before, but, it's, but so he's new to command as well. So he's going to set up the 21st Virginia and told in um, Johnson is going to tell everyone, the, the brigade people on the line, as well as the picket line, he says, stay alert and stay awake. He basically That's says, don't sleep. You're not sleeping. You're not sleeping right. tonight. Well, the picket's not going to sleep anyway, but but, yeah. the, but the people on the line, um, after that, like I said, he goes to bed in full uniform and he, he's got a hope for the best. Now, what's happening on the union side on the May, May 11th is interesting too, because at mm -hmm. 7 p.m., Winfield Scott Hancock is going to meet with his three division commanders. This, of course, is Francis Barlow, John Gibbon, David Belberni. Yep. Garchamont is he's he's there, but his men are detached, so he's not really part of it at this phase anyway. Hancock is going to tell them of Grant's plan, and he's going to tell them we're going to use the entire Second Corps. We're going to attack the Rebel right flank right at the Mule Shoe right at daybreak the next day. 
but he didn't offer any details beyond he's that. He's very, Prince, it's like that person that when they go on Facebook and they, they write what they're doing, but they're very, it's ve- called vague booking. That's what he does. Like it's basically, you know, the troop said it's lacking basic information about what exactly is going to happen. You know, what obstacles could we potentially be facing? He's like basically giving them the times, but being very vague about it. Well, I mean, Francis Barlow, he's going to say that we were told of the importance of the assault, but given no critical details. Yeah. The detailed plans obviously are very critical, you know, to any battle success. And Barlow was concerned. He he went on. I'm going to read again. He says, no information whatsoever was given to us as the position or the strength of the enemy or the troops to be engaged, nor as to the plan of attack or to why this attack was going to be made at the time or the place anyway. So he's like, what the hell is, what, this yeah. is stupid. Yeah, and, and, and so, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was about to say, oh, old, old Frank has got his dander up with this. He, he doesn't like it. I don't blame him. You know. No, but Han- Hancock, when Hancock was questioned, he told his division commanders the attack was, was, and this is unbelievable, he goes, the attack plan was determined by a compass from the Brown House toward a large white house known to be inside the enemy's works. So they're like, huh, okay. Okay, well, now, do you know should, the terrain you're going to be over? Well, that's the thing. It, it should be noted that this this terrain was not scouted. And no one really had any idea if there even was a freaking White House back there. And they didn't know how many to expect. They had no idea. So Barlow, Gibbet, and Bernie, they're going to go back to their men. And they're going to be getting this march to the Brown House, and, and, and which is going to be the staging area now for this yeah. battle attack the next morning. Now, it's probably 11 o'clock at night. It's late. At this point, when the men begin this, th- it's about a three-mile march. It is absolutely pouring. It is so dark. Yeah. You could not see your hands in front of your face. This is 19,000 men stumbling on a horrible, dark, and rainy night, and the complaints began immediately. Oh, yeah, there John was... Haley. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Right. Sorry. John Haley, the 17th man, he's one of Bernie's guys. He's going to say, when darkness set in, it was black. On what direction we had ordered to move, we could not tell. We marched for several hours and then stumbled into a camp of slumberers, which we marched right over, knocking down stacks of guns, treading on heads and other portions of human anatomy. The the air was sufferous with their responses. So you can just imagine, they're walking into the camp and these people are like, get the hell out, da, 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 da. And, and, and it, there's so many good stories. Yeah. Joseph Hodgkins, the 19th Mass, which was one of Gibbons' guys, in the second division, he's going to say, it was hard, wearisome march, raining all the time, making it very muddy, swelling the little brooks to torrents, though we were uh, we had to wade, filling our boots with water and having no time to empty them as it was a forced march. So the thing about you got to remember, these guys, they're tired. They've been fighting yeah. for basically eight straight days they're awoken up in the middle of the night to go to a forced march through the dark where they have no idea where they're going. It's pouring rain. It was so bad that when the columns stopped, men were falling on the ground and falling asleep immediately. Yeah, like they're exhausted. And one guy said, nobody knew where we were going, but a rumor was started that we were going back to the rear to rest and wash our clothes. And this proved partially true. As it rained so hard all night that our clothes were thoroughly washed, but they needed wringing badly. I think I can safely say that of our many night marches, this one took the cake. Um, the roads were described as being awful. It rained continuously. And the thing is, is like, 
um, you and I both read an article that was about the weather at Spotsylvania. It talks about how the soil in this particular area that they're in, it's like sandy and stuff, but then it's almost like clay. And when it rains as much as it did, it becomes impossible to move through. Um, right. Like their boots are getting stuck in it and everything else. Um, and another guy said, every man followed his leader, not by sight or touch, but by hearing him growl and swear as he slipped, splashed, and tried to pull his feet out of the mud. I mean, and this is not respect. This is not just on the, the, the enlisted men. The yeah. officers, Barlow, he went from division commander to disgruntled office temp in one day with this march. So he yeah. he's going to write down, I remember well the loudly expressed indignation of the officers sent to conduct an important movement. They had no information whatsoever as to the position or the strength of the enemy. Mm-hmm. It was a sense of the ludicrous, the absurdity of the situation prevailed over the feeling of responsibility. He then goes on to say, uh, Colonel Miles, Nelson Miles, we'll talk about him later, and John Rutterbrook rode with me to the head of the column and were loud in their complaints of the madness of this undertaking. I had to tell Miles to be quiet so the men didn't hear him. Because you don't want the, the men hearing this. But um, it goes on and on. William Pryber, one of Hancock's adjutants, he's going to write about this march. The intense darkness, pouring rain, and muddy, heavy roads with the uncertainty of the direction. It goes on and on and on. It just, it just, it just, it's laughable about how bad this was. Yeah. And you, you can, you can see why they were mad. I mean, they're about to go into battle now, and they're both they're blind, both literally and figuratively, right? In the, and it gets even better with this. The guides that Hancock sent to lead them, Colonel C.H. Morgan and G.M. Mandel, to the, to the Brown Farm, yep. they have no idea where they're going either. This is The whole thing is a complete shit show. You think the Commonwealth of Massachusetts who runs the MBTA figured this one out. That's how I think bad they did. this one was. I think that's who's currently running the MBTA, actually. <laughs> but but when, they finally, when they finally did arrive, they did make it, the division commanders are going to meet with Hancock at the Brown Farm which was going on, which was basically going to be that launching off point um, for that attack now later in a couple hours in the morning. Lieutenant Colonel Merriam, he's a member of Gershom Mottstaff. What he did is he put up a big piece of paper on the wall of the Brown House showing where they, where he thought the rebel line was. Now, <laughs> oh no, Merriam has never seen the rebel line. He's, he said, I think you're here. They're planning their attack plan on this. And don't forget, too, and this is why the Sheridan thing is important. Because the issue with me, the eyes and ears are gone. They have no one to scout this. Yep. So, again, this is why this decision to send, you know, is is the death of Jeb, Jeb Stewart worth what these guys are about to go through? Because that that's that's the, the, the math yeah, equation. The, you yeah, that's, of, right? that's kind of the trade-off. And that that's one thing I really thought about when I was researching this episode and reading about it was like, you know, Sheridan, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about this more in our second episode, too. But Sheridan goes on about, you know, how important the death of Jeb Stewart is, makes it seem really, really important. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, really, is this is this worth it? What these guys are going through right now without that well, cal- Calvary screening? And Barlow at this point is just like, so they're looking up the wall and it goes, this is where we think they are. And Barlow is going to turn, he's going to sarcastically say to, to Miriam, are you sure there's not a thousand foot ravine between us and the rebel lines? And he kind of rolls his eyes out. And so this is the mindset going into this. Now, seeing the perceived hopelessness of this entire situation, Barlow was going to say, you know what? This is stupid. He's just passing over his valuables to a friend of his saying, I ain't coming back from this. This is stupid. Can you please take my stuff? This is a suicide mission. It's 
please take, you know, clear my history cachet, do all the important things. <laughs> he must be pissed but, at Hank. Uh, the, one, the one thing, too, is like, I can't imagine how he feels towards Hancock right now with this like well, Hancock was basically like I don't know where I'm sending you but can you please go kind of well, thing the thing about Bar- Barlow's personality does change now Francis Barlow he was new to this command for the most part yeah he didn't really know his men the only thing his men knew about Francis Barlow is that he was a prick he was very hard disciplined you know after Sedgwick got shot a lot of the officers took off their sideboards because yeah. they didn't want to be shot by sharpshooters Barlow says, put the freaking sideboards back on your damn jackets or I'm going to court-martial you. You know, like, oh, come on. So this is this is how he was. Yeah. But for the most part, once this whole thing went down, Barlow is going to give orders to his men. And he was different. Instead of fiery and angry and determined and disciplined, he was subdued. He was strangely kind to his men. He was suddenly nice. And the men noticed the change in the demeanor. To them, this is like, this is not good. This is a bad sign. If Barlow's all nice, things, it's not good. All those things I said about you, look, I think you're a great guy. Don't worry about it. You're a good dude. And they're all like, what the hell's going on? That's what was going on. So, you know, the reality was Barlow knew that he had a responsibility to his men. Yeah. He's about to lead them into battle with little knowledge of a waiter for them. His troops, these troops were not green. These are battle-tested veterans. Yeah. And this, they knew this was going to be a tough one. They, they, they knew it. Well, I think what's happening so, is like Barlow is sensing like, okay, we're not, we don't have clear orders from Meade or Grant or, you know, he doesn't have clear orders from his direct boss, Hancock. So Barlow is picking up on this. It's not really a power vacuum, but it's one of those things where sometimes like there's certain people that when they, they recognize that there's not the leadership they need, they go into that role of being the leader and being the strong person and being like, I have to be calm and collected and figure things out for these guys. And that's what I think what Barlow is doing in this situation is he's like, I gotta, I gotta be the adult in the room kind of thing. Cause I was not given clear orders, So I got to figure this out for myself. He does. And he begins, you know, in his defense, he begins to put his division in that tight column, that fist formation that Upton had done a couple of days before. So he is going to have a very similar tactic. He's going to put his men in that tight, dense column. David Belberni's division is going to be on his right, spread in that traditional linear formation. So they're going to swing like a hammer. That's how, how they're basically going to do he said these 19,000 men, he goes, they could take hell itself. That's mm-hmm. what he said about, about because he was he was confident, but on his men anyway, the rain's going to start to slow a little bit into a, to a mist, and it covered everything. And the attack was supposed to start at four, 4 o'clock in the morning, but because of the fog, it was delayed. And by the time the men started to begin to move, it was 420. It's probably why there was so much smog, so it was 420. Realistically, yeah. that's probably why. But just a few hundred yards in front through that woods is going to be that rebel picket line I mentioned mm-hmm. under, uh, under Witcher that I, that I talked about, right? Now, all night long is, you know, they heard, this picket line heard the sounds of marching men in the woods in their front, going from their left to their right. And the sounds were, weren't really a surprise because they were told Grant's men were retreating in that direction. So they, mm-hmm. that large noise, cacophony, I guess they said about it, of this marching and they just they they, they got used to it and and as the night turned during the early hours of the 12th the sounds changed the sounds of marching men was now replaced by the sounds of thousands of men whispering in the woods and the footsteps were no longer moving from left to right they basically stopped 
Was it the souls preparing for an attack? Maybe it was the Rosewoods clown. They didn't know what the hell it was, but it was something different. And they didn't know what the hell was going on, but they they smelled a rat. An officer on the picket line is going to become convinced um, that maybe there's something going on. He's going to be concerned. He's going to go to Witcher, and then he's going to go to General George uh, H. Stewart, Marilyn Stewart. He's going to go to him. And they're going to come back. They're going to go get them, bring them to the line and say, listen, tell me, what do you, what do you hear? And they're going to come and they, they hear this eerie murmuring of whispering men in the woods. And there's no more that marching. That would be so creepy. And, and that's what, what's going on. Stewart said it sounded like a waterfall of noise. And he was convinced they were about to be attacked. He goes, they're not marching. They're forming. So he's going to ride back to the McCool house, which is that white house they talked about. They're going to go back to and he's going to wake up Allegheny Johnson, who was in his full uniform in his boots, and he's been nervous all night. And now he's he's in a panic because the guns are still not back. They're still gone. And what's going to happen is he's he's going to go find Richard Yule. He's going to say who – and he's going to sleep. He's sleeping in a place called the Harrison Farm. And he's going to beg him, listen, I need this artillery. I need it. You know, Hook me up. Hook a brother mm-hmm. up here. And, he's, and so Yule goes, well, let me go find Lee. I'll go find Lee and see what the hell he wants to do. Lee, here's this note. Here's this, what's going on. Yule goes, here's what they're hearing. Here's what's going on. Lee says, ah, don't worry about it. They're just retreating. Just let, don't, don't worry about it. It's just a sound of Grant moving. But Johnson, Allegheny's like, no. He goes, this is not, he's wrong. So he's going to basically send the order to find those missing 20 guns. Thomas Carter, Carter's battalion. That's who has these guns, and they, these are the ones that have, that have moved out. Carter is about two miles away, and when the messenger arrives, it's like, "Come and get the guns." The men are asleep. The horses are grazing in the fields. The yeah. guns are. Um, it's just they're not ready to go. So it'll be probably a half hour before daybreak before they actually get going. So what you have is this race between Hancock's men going to the mule shoe, yeah, and. Carter's guns going to the mule shoe, neither knows they're in a race, but they are. And when Hancock's men who, you know, who started that move toward, uh, towards the mule shoe at 420, they had about, they couldn't see what was going on either. They had about 50 yards of visibility yeah. in all directions because it's dark, it's misty, and you're, you're in the woods, and they're told specifically to be quiet. Yeah. So that's what the whispering was like, shh, no, no, shut up. You don't be quiet. You know, yeah. they're, they're trying to be quiet, being barely, barely quiet. And that's what, that's what they're going to be doing. Now, Barlow, as you can imagine, is still not thrilled about this whole thing. No, he's, he's very sarcastic. Like he said at some point, like at one point, for heaven's sake, at least face us in the right direction so that we shall not march away from the enemy and have to round the world and come up in their rear. <laughs> or Savannah. He, he's still, he's yeah, pissed. exactly. He, he doesn't know where the hell they're going. And the only thing he, the only thing that they know for sure is that there was a, and this is the thing too that their plan was simple. The Rebs run a ridge, go knock them off, yeah. go through them. You're gonna, you're, and so they're like, okay, that's all they knew for sure. It's okay? kind of similar to so, what um, Sherman was gonna do, I think, at Missionary Ridge. Is there was, and I mean, it was a hilly area, right? And he's just like basically, you need to go to this area and, and get Claiborne, and that's kind of. I think it, in a way it's similar. One soldier said like in the dim gray light of that early morning, uh, spring morning with a mist rising from the field and thicket. And while the birds were faintly chirping in the bushes and trees, as they noted the coming of dawn, the grand old first division moved forward under perfect silence. 
and they had to move quietly. So it's probably just before five o'clock in the morning, realistically, give or take. In the 48th Virginia, they're going to make it to the rebel picket line to relieve, you know, to relieve the the, the other Virginians. They they come and relieve them, and and they they they're the ones who you know they're hearing all this stuff and there's all kinds of stuff going on too, and they're in the process of changing the change of these guys are coming, these guys are going back. All of a sudden, they notice all the birds on the trees start taking off. Yeah, they fly right right out of the trees, like a whole bunch of them. And very similar to when Jackson routed your boy there at Chandlersville mm. when the animals came through, right? There's our um, Howard reference so, for this episode. I thought I was going to, you You were like, how go. are you going to get this? And you managed to get it in for me. Well, the 48th Virginia sees all these birds flying at them now. And moments later, the first Union um, troops are going to exit the woods in front of the picket line that's on this ridge. And the first shot is going to be fired from a location nearby called the Landrum House. And when the first shot's fired, the, it's not going to stop for 22 straight hours. It's going to be the longest sustained combat in the Civil War starting with this. Now, the initial fire from the Union troops was so intense that one rebel literally grabbed his head to make sure it was still on. I better check. I don't know how the, wow, how I was that's, thinking, but, yeah, they but, said, but, like, in the pickets, like, when they started firing... Uh, one Union soldier said they had to do one of two things, surrender or skip. And I think every picket in front of our line skipped for dear life. Oh, yeah. Barlow's men, they rushed right through this. This picket line was absolutely helpless. You know, many of the Virginians surrendered, but even had a chance to raise their rifles. That's how quick this thing yeah. was. And apparently the and Union know, guys let forth a yell which woke people in Washington. Well, so exactly. So a few minutes later. You know, I, I mean, I, you know, they get through. Now, I mentioned before that they were attacking this ridge with yeah. Confederates on. They walk out, they attack Confederates. Guess what? They're on a ridge. Well, this is it. Yeah. So now they're thinking, well, this was friggin' easy. They're going to capture this ridge. And, and all of a sudden, all that angst and all that anxiety, they released and started cheering. Yahoo! We did it. I mean, it was, it's, it, it Investment. Think of this is what we went all night for this for this. Yeah. And so they're start, they're thinking this is great. They're high fiving each other. This, this is the greatest thing in the world. And then as the morning starts to get a little bit lighter, they look at the haze and the sun and, and, um, and the sunrise is coming. They look in the distance across a field, two hundred yards away, and what do they see? They see another ridge with breastworks on it. Yeah. And one of the guys said, "That's no more. It's a space station." That's probably what he said. Right. But they realized that they the the ridge they got was the wrong ridge. Yeah. That's not the ridge. These aren't so the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids. So they were like, oh, okay. Yeah, that so sucks. That's kind of like a Billy Goat Hill situation, right? Oh, there. yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think you have it. All of a sudden you look and you see this ridge yeah, with that's... dirt on top of it and you're like, oh, oh, crap. That's what I was saying. So, it was like Missionary Ridge. It's like, this is like the Billy Goat Hill thing with Sherman. Yeah. So this, so it's 200 yards away and, uh, and, these, and they're looking at the mule shoe now. And the people on the mule shoe, the Rebs, they couldn't see the Union troops because of that mist. Now, they could certainly hear them. Mm -hmm. They heard them cheering, screaming. And immediately, as soon as they started hearing the yells and the huzzahs and everything like that, the Rebs are going to line up and they're going to get ready. Yeah, they have time to get ready for these guys. One of the Rebs, the the cheers were so loud, they thought it was cannon fire. That's how loud these cheers were. Wow. And whatever element of surprise Barlow thought he had is obviously completely gone. But they can hear the Union, but they can't see them. And that's, this is this is where you get lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, the 20 guns are on their way, but they haven't been there yet. They still got the four, and the four guns start firing. 
And at this point, the union men know this is, oops, this, the, all that cheer has turned solemn again. Barlow knew he had to get his men across that field. And if you've been there, you've seen the field. It, it's, it's a long, it's a field, but in the middle, there's kind of a dip. There's, I don't want to say ravine, but this, it's a, it's a pretty good sized dip. So if you're like an undulation, there you go. Or if you're, if you're running across it, yeah, you'll run across. It looks like you've been swallowed up. Now yeah. that is all filled with mist at this point. So you, you can't be seen because of the sound of that valley, that cauldron of the mist in the, in the, uh, the field, the Rebs hear the cheers and it's way back at that picket line. So now they're moving forward, but they line their guns up on that ridge line. So they're firing over the Union guys, and they don't even know it. They're firing at sound. And so, so what happens is, for the most part, Barlow's realize they're, okay, they're shooting over us, but we're in the middle of a freaking field here. So if we wait here, we're mm. dead. They're going to get us eventually. So he's going to say, we got to run full speed at the mule shoe. Double quick. Barlow's going to yell, forward, double quick, charge. And they all go. And they're going to run full speed. This is 19,000 guys, full speed across this field. They're going to hit that mule shoe at, full, at a full sprint, just as those missing rebel guns are starting to arrive. They're yeah. all kind of getting there at the same time. Barlow won that race by maybe five, ten minutes. That's how yeah. close. That's how close they came. Another half an hour later, they would have had those twenty. Well, I mean, guns he is former Eleventh Corps, so he knows how to run. Oh, well, he probably had the proper sneakers. You know, no question <laughs> about that. But you know, it's um, you know, one of the we'll talk about some of the, some of the revs. One of the revs who was captured was um, you know, was was Marilyn Stewart. He said it was um, one, one of the we'll get to him, but some of the men in Stewart's yeah. brigade they got caught. And one of them said, a cloud of blue uniforms came pressing down on our works, completely filling the space in the angle. The mule shoe was as hectic as the Gettysburg DQ on buy one, get one free <laughs> blizzard day. That's how many how crazy this was going on all of a sudden. And it's still dark and it's still misty, right? So with no artillery, and the thing is, is with no artillery platform, Hancock is is trying to is trying to he's over at the he's over at the landrum farm and he's trying to set up some kind of artillery. He has 24-pound shell mortars. He's going to try to fire these uh, from the Landro house into the mule shoe. Mm -hmm. David Holden, he's the 16th Mississippi. He was he was in there at the trenches. He wrote about these mortars. He says, the enemy moved some mortars in a position, attempted to drop a few shells in our trench, mostly overshot and undershot. One made a direct hit. He writes, there were two men in the breastworks and a shell burst between them. One blew into the ditch in fragments, and the head of the other was knocked off without moving his body. Oh. So that's how it was going on. Now, yeah. because of the wet weather and how close the troops were all intermingled, yeah. this that stop of the mortars, you just can't do it. Now, Barlow's men, they're barreling through the lines while this is happening. Now, David Bell Bernie's 20 guys start coming. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be moving, and they're going to be attacking that western side of the mule shoe slope, which is going to later be called the bloody angle. We'll talk about that next time, yeah. more detail about the bloody angle. But this is the angle that they're coming at. Now, the men on Barlow's front, for the most part, um, you know, the, they, they, the, the Confederates are mostly awake the whole night long. But some of the other ones who weren't on the mule shoe, they were sleeping. Yeah. And when they ran to the line to fire their guns, guess what happened? They didn't go off because 
they had kept them upright during the night and the rain had gone right. in makes the powder damp. So, I mean, you still hear a pop, but nothing else happens because everything's damp. So they run, they grab their guns, they rush up and they shoot and a flower comes out. Yeah. Like, like, like a clown. And they go, oh, come on. And that's what happens because they were not ready. So it was, um, it was right around this time when Carter's guns start to come up and they're being captured for the most part by, by Bernie's men before, you know, because they're shooting the horses as they're coming up and they're grabbing the guns. What yep. they're doing now, it was around this time, and this this picture, this fights going on hand to hand combat. There's a story of, of of Hickory Hat. You know the story of Hickory Hat? No, I don't actually. Hickory Hat was a was a name of a giant rebel soldier from the 23rd Virginia and Stewart's Brigade. And he was fighting Bernie's guys right on that western side of the Mule Shoe Salient. He was a big muscular monster. He ends up in a hand-to-hand combat fight with an equally sized big Union guy. And they got the rifles and they're pushing against each other. Finally, Hickory has. He basically looks at him and he says, um, he says, uh, would you rather wrestle? Guy goes, Yeah, let's wrestle. They oh my god. And, and they, they who knows if there was an RKO situation, <laughs> but they they started wrestling. Hickory Hat pushes the union guy down, starts jabbing his thumbs in his eyes. Oh my god, the that's North- like that's like freaking uh Game of Thrones shit right, right. there. But the northern guy says, I submit, I submit, and he lets go. And and that 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 they were really just wrestling. They just had a wrestling match. Hickory oh Hat got caught, he got he got hauled back, but it's but it's a great it's a great story when you Jeez. look at some of these stories. But um the Union Six Corps into Horatio Wright, they're gonna enter now, they're gonna enter the dance floor and they're gonna follow Bernie's men. Yeah. So there's wave after wave heading towards this bloody angle slope. And that'll continue on and on. We'll talk about that later. But down the line, you know, you have the Louisiana Tigers now who are being run by William Monaghan. Now, um, Harry Hayes, people know him from Gettysburg, he got shot down while they were setting the breastwork. So he's on yep. the picture of Monaghan now. And he's going to see these Bernie's guys coming. And he's going to yell down the line, look out, boys. We will have blood for supper tonight. That's what he yelled. And, um, and then, of course, his Tigers are around. That was, the, that, was the, that was the end of them. So, so much for Louisiana Tigers. You know. But even the famous Stonewall Brigade was part of this as well. They got yeah. defeated. And this is the, obviously Stonewall Jackson, the 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 27th, 33rd Virginia, now commanded by James A. Walker. Yeah. Now, James McCown, part of that 4th Virginia, he's going to say, we fought so desperately, never dreaming of capture until we were completely surrounded by overwhelming numbers. You know the story of James Walker, by the way, about, about his history with Stonewall? No, I know he's called like he's got like a Stonewall type nickname, and he's leading the so brigade. Here's, here's, this is actually a, this is actually a good story about, about James uh, James Walker. He was a student of Stone Thomas Jackson at VMI. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Stonewall. Well, he was you know he was a Stonewall then, but Thomas Jackson, for whatever reason, Jackson wanted to expel Walker from the school. Oh. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now it's coming back to me. His story. So he. So he's gonna. So Walker. He's gonna get pissed off, and he's gonna go to old Professor Jackson. He's gonna challenge him to a duel. He wants to kill him. So Walker very much wanted Jackson to cross the river and rest under the shade of the trees a few years early. Is what he really (laughs) wanted to do. Now, now Jackson he refused the duel because he said that he wasn't of comparable rank, and so it didn't happen. So Walker gets expelled. He gets kicked out of school. 1861, he signs up as a private in Stonewall Jackson's 
brigade. Wow. Ma- Mary Jackson sees the name and says, you know, Thomas, I don't think you should have this guy around you because I'm pretty sure he wants to kill you. And Thomas is like, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. They became close during the war, and he actually promoted James Walker to run his brigade. And so you went from a, a student who got kicked out who wanted to kill him yeah. to promoting him to his brigade. Now he now Walker's in charge of the whole thing. Stonewall's gone. But that's the story of James Walker and Stonewall Jackson. It's just, it's just these stories are funny. Yeah, I know. So, everything like, inter- yeah, everything interweaves with each other, it seems. Oh, yeah. And, you know, as this goes on this in this initial assault, you know, Hancock's men are going to sustain a complete victory. 4,000 prisoners, 24 pieces of artillery in, in, in basically one hour. And one of the, you know, couple of 4,000 prisoners is going to be Edward Allegheny Johnson, old clubby. He's going to yep. be caught. And when he's captured, Johnson is he's standing on top of the breastworks. In the stories, he's waving his club, whacking, whacking. It's a miracle he wasn't gone down, but he's just swinging. That was yeah. his weapon, swinging his club yep. at people. Well, inevitably, he's going to get caught. He'll get taken behind the line where he's going to run into his old friend, Hancock. Him and Hancock had some shenanigans in Mexico. They were kind of they were kind yep. of bold. So they met and tears are rolling down Allegheny Johnson's eyes. And you know, he's just probably thinking about that personal loss of his men. And uh, Johnson is going to be greeted by Hancock. And Johnson's going to tell Hancock, this is worse than death for me. And then Hancock's going to respond, this is the fate of war, General. You are a soldier. And so another soldier who gets caught, another general. Marilyn Stewart. Marilyn Stewart. And the story of his capture is, is just awesome. And it's quite the opposite. He's captured by a guy named Colonel James Beaver of the 148th of Pennsylvania from Millerstown, Pennsylvania, not far from Gettysburg, actually. Mm-hmm. When he's captured, Stewart says to him, I wish to surrender to an officer of rank. I am General Stewart. Beaver's eyes grew wider than you would looking at the IPA menu at that moment. Goes, you're Jeb Stewart? And he goes, no, I'm George. And he goes, oh, okay, fine. And so he thought he bagged Jeb Stewart. Oh, he thought it was Marilyn Stewart. Well, <laughs> I so, mean, unbeknownst to these guys at the time, <laughs> Jeb Stewart has passed away. I think today is the day that Jeb Stewart oh, passed yeah. away. The anniversary he of his thinks death. He, he thinks he's bagged the big cavalry. Wow. He, he got Marilyn Stewart. And so Beaver then demands his sword. And Stewart sarcastically replies, well, sir, you woke me up so early this morning, I didn't have time to put it on, so I don't have it. <laughs> so that's what he says oh, to God. him. And so he gets taken behind the lines. He knows old Winnie Boy from before the war, too. Yeah. And Hancock goes to stick his hand out. And, he saw, and Stewart looks at him and says, under these circumstances, I cannot take your hand. Then Hancock, you no know, Hancock, he snaps back and says, "In different circumstances, I wouldn't have even offered it." Wow. And the best part about it is, they all get they all get taken back now. Yeah, Allegheny Johnson gets to ride in the ambulance because yeah. Stuart Hancock likes him. Stuart's got to walk with the rest of his men. The four thousand guys he makes his ass walk. Wow! So it's just, it's just it's just a great thing. That's a great and, story. You know, in this why catch flies with honey than vinegar. I tell you all the time, Mary, yeah. to people. Mm. Walking, you know, but but this initial part of the assault is 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 a is a famous one because you know it led to forty three medals of honor just on this part of the battle. Yeah. Twenty two were from picking up flags in Middle East. They were. Wow. Um, the youngest medal of honor recipient was Archibald Freeman. He was a sixteen year old kid from one hundred twenty fourth New York, the Orange Blossom Regiment, Mary. And so this is what this is kind of what happens with this. But this is what. 
what's amazing about this whole thing is is during all this robert e lee is in the rear and he's completely unaware of this route in yeah. progress and he's trying he's he's standing there in the back he's behind the cool house and he sees some of his men running and he starts yelling at them what are you running you're you know we're, we're, stop go back to your regiments go back to your regiments and they just keep going they yeah. totally 11th it and keep on going and he's like he's like well, what the hell's going on here so he has no idea what the story is mm. one of allegheny johnson's staff officers a guy named robert hunter comes riding by on a horse heading towards the back must be an artillery horse probably grab one of the artillery horses and he is going to he's going to basically ride back and he's going to finally and he's going to tell lee hunter's going to tell lee the lines completely breached everything is in shambles it's a complete mess up front at this moment lee who was who was thinking up to that very moment that grant is retreating suddenly has that pucker effect moment yeah, like, and his oh, demeanor shit. completely changes yeah now, you, now, now think about it for a second right you know moments earlier he's thinking okay i'm gonna attack grant i got the guns on the way we're yeah. gonna hit him for against the fredericksburg we're gonna keep him on the run we're gonna seize the initiative all of a sudden he's in an existential moment of this could be over right now no more army in northern virginia no more war in virginia at all in the east he has this holy shit moment that this we are on the verge of complete and utter destruction right now and he didn't even see it coming yeah that yeah and he he doesn't see it coming at all and this is where he kind of has his like what do i do moment i mean his left and his right wings are separated yeah the, the, the union are flowing through the middle like water through a dam and he's for the most part he knows he has to do something immediately he yes. knows that this he is literally hanging off the ledge right now by his thumbs and if he doesn't do something right now this whole thing is over so i mean what's he going to do i mean can he save the army and that, Mary, is where we're going to stop this episode. It is. And we're going to pick it up next time because we're going to find out what Lee does do yeah. and how he can reconcile his army together and try to push back this on-flowing guys. But at this moment, it looks pretty pretty bleak. Yeah, the, it's very bleak with, with the guys coming you know, through. They've, Even though they've gotten the wrong spot to begin with, they're still breaking through because they've still caught them kind of unaware. Um, but yeah, Lee is going to have to go and kind of regroup and figure out, oh, what am I going to do now that these guys have broken through? You know, they weren't, they weren't going to Fredericksburg like I thought they were. So he's going to have to think pretty quickly on his feet about that. Right. And, you know, we'll talk about this next time when we finish the yep. episode, but, but he, this is where you're going to get guys like John Brown Gordon getting involved yeah. and you're going to have other, other people on that second line get involved in this, and we're going to talk about the bloody angle and that consistent, endless battle and nonstop fighting and blood that's going to take place at the Battle of Spotsylvania. So, I guess we can finish up right here. So we'll leave that's a little cliffhanger for the people who probably don't know how this thing finishes yeah. up. But suffice it to say, um, the second half of this battle is going to be just as violent as the first, and it's going to we'll, we'll talk about a lot of different people. Some maybe you have heard of, and some maybe you haven't heard of, but it's going to tell that story of Spotsylvania. If you've not been to Spotsylvania, I would highly suggest you go. Have to visit. It's an amazing battlefield. battlefield. You can see, you can see for the most part exactly where the mule shoe, the breastworks are. They're still there. You can walk across that field. You go there in the morning. You can see the mist in the field covering everything. It is pristine. 
and um, it's a fantastic place. So, so that's our, I usually say what's next for us, but I guess I'll do it anyway, Mary. What's next for us? So part two is Spotsylvania, obviously. Um, for those who attend our roundtable, we will be having our roundtable next Wednesday evening. I think it's the 17th, 16th? Anyway, it's next Wednesday know. night at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Invites will be going out for that soon. If you've never attended before, Civil War Breakfast Club at gmail.com. We will send you an invite. It's just no set topic. We just nerded about the Civil War. Um, and then obviously Spotsylvania Part 2, which will be episode 108, will be coming out next week. Um, and then after that, we will be going back to the Western Theater to talk about the Battle of Pickett's Mills, which is happening. Or not. It's hap- It happens a few weeks after Spotsylvania, and it is probably one of the most violent battles to happen in the Atlanta campaign. Um, so again, we're, we're doing some very violent battles, but the one thing that I've learned, um, in my research recently and just like studying these battles and going out to the Western theater and seeing them is that 1864 is a completely different beast in the Eastern and Western theater compared to previous years of the civil war. It is like, it's terrible. I mean, you read about what's happening at the bloody angle. We're going to talk about that next week. But Pickett's Mills as well is a horrific battle. So thank you to all of our listeners for sticking with us on this journey of so far 107 episodes. We are on to 108. And thank you, Darren, for being an awesome co-host. Oh, it's my pleasure. And this is a, this is a good battle to talk about. Spotsylvania is, is certainly one of my favorites in the East. It's it's certainly up there. Um, it's a, It'll be the second most violent um, well, it's the second battle of the Overland campaign, but it's going to be that, like I said, 22 Very consecutive violent. hours of longest sustained fighting. So, um, so we'll have a good time finishing this up to see what Lee can do to try to stem this yep. tide by Barlow. And, and wow, you said it was your pleasure to be doing those podcasts. You usually say the pleasure is all mine. Sorry, the microphone didn't seem to go on. What were you saying? Anyway, everybody, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Live on Saturday. Saturday? Yeah, Saturday at 10, this Saturday, 10 a.m., the 13th of May, we'll be doing our live via via YouTube. So, yeah, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. See you soon there. A lot of good things coming down the pike. So, Mary, again, I will say, like, always, the pleasure was all yours this time. I will say that. Anyhow, everybody have a great night. We'll talk to you on the other side. See you all later. Peace out. Bye.